Welcome to the Living to 100 Club podcast. Here's our host, Dr. Joseph Cassiani. Hello there. I'm Joe Cassiani, your host for the Living to 100 Club podcast. Our conversations are all about aging well and doing what it takes mentally and physically to live longer and healthier. Our guests share insights and recommendations about successful aging, stories of perseverance, and inspiration about our future. Today's program focuses on the science of dementia and the latest research on preventable causes of dementia. Our guest for this podcast is Dr. Paula Hartman-Stein, a geropsychologist and co-author of a chapter, Preventing What's Preventable in Dementia. This is in a new text, Handbook of Evidence-Based Prevention of Behavioral Disorders in Integrated Care. Paula has been a previous guest on our podcast. She joins us today to discuss what we've learned about the risk factors for dementia and the lifestyle factors that may account for as much as 40% of dementia cases worldwide. Can we change or modify these risk factors? If so, does the risk of developing dementia decrease? How big a role does better nutrition and diet play in reducing our risk? We'll tackle these questions and others. First, a little background on Paula. Dr. Hartman-Stein is a nationally recognized clinical psychologist, gerontology educator, and journalist. After retiring from full-time work as a clinician in private practice and associate professor at Northeast Ohio Medical University and adjunct professor at the University of Akron and Kent State University, Dr. Hartman-Stein currently works part-time as a consultant and educator, offering lively presentations to community and professional groups on healthy aging and improving memory skills. This fall, she has a new role as adjunct professor at Brevard College, Brevard, North Carolina, teaching lifespan development. Broadening her promotion of the power of the pen, she also leads writing workshops on Zoom or in person as an approach to reduce stress, deepen spirituality, and enhance optimal aging. Paula, it's great to have you back on our podcast. Well, thank you, Joe. Thanks for inviting me. This should be um, hopefully a fun and interesting conversation between the two of us. So I think you. so. I think so, too. I think it's going to be a very informative, inspiring conversation. So I always like to open by asking our guests to tell us a little bit about the journey. I went through some of your professional history, but tell us about the journey that brought you to where you are today. Okay. I'll try to make this uh, succinct. Well, I'm um, from Western Pennsylvania. I'm from a working class background. In fact, I'm half Croatian and half Ukrainian. So I'm very interested in um, all the world events, the tragedies that are happening in the Ukraine right now. Um, I'm actually a coal miner's daughter, and uh, I've had opportunities for education, which I, for which I'm grateful. So I went to the U of Pittsburgh, um, wanted to be a psychologist or a journalist, and I have become both, but my bread and butter has been from psychology uh, much more than my writing. Um, I went to grad school at WVU, West Virginia. I did a, an internship, actually, in journalism for a uh, PBS television station, 
and I worked in radio a little bit. And then um, I got a master's degree from there and I worked my first um, professional job in psychology or counseling was at a dialysis unit. So I worked in hemodialysis as a counselor in Akron, Ohio. And then I, I knew I wanted to you know, go further and couldn't decide what to do. And so I audited um, two courses at the University of Akron and from the Institute for Lifespan Development and Gerontology. There's a well-known professor there. I believe he's retired. I'm not sure. He just kind of like the inner energizer bunny keeps going, um, Harvey Stearns. And uh, uh, took two courses there, and, uh, but then decided to go to Kent State and went into clinical psych and worked in health psych. And so I had this opportunity, what really thrust me into the Gero world was I had this opportunity at Akron General, which is now part of the Cleveland Clinic hospital system, um, had this opportunity to work at a, a, a geriatric assessment center. And I, and I was already licensed for about um, six or seven years, but I realized how little I really knew in depth about that topic. So um, I was married then and I couldn't really move. So fortunately at Case Western Reserve, they had a new program called a clinician development uh, program. And I was the first psychologist to go through that. It was really um, designed for primary care practitioners. So I did that and you, Joe, you won't believe how long that took. It was one, this is a true story, who could make this up? One day a week, seven years, seven years. So that's how I really, uh, I shadowed gerontologists, uh, psychiatrists, geriatric psychiatrists, took all of the, the uh, CE programs that they had for their residents, et cetera. So, and then, then my capstone experience was to design a course for Cleveland State University on the pragmatics of clinical geropsychology. So that's what I did. So then um, went back to working at the hospital for a number of years, but decided I wanted to broaden my work. And I, I left the hospital, started a private practice called the Center for Healthy Aging, where I was for 21 years. Yes. And yeah, and, and there I did a number of things really in the uh, community, in the gero world. I, I, I got some grants. Um, I did this thing called the Keys to a Sharp Mind, which was at a continuing care retirement community. We did that for three years. And then I, lo I love to say this. I brought chaos to Kent. Now, what does that mean? Chaos. K-A-O-S. Kent Area Orthography Society. Oh. What is orthography? You know what orthography is, Joe? Sure. Go ahead. Yeah. Spelling. Spelling. So I... I designed these courses about how to be a better speller because I believed, and I know that it's true, at least anecdotally for me, because I went through it, is to, um, it, it helps your visualization skills. So I got this grant and I ran adult spelling bees, older adult spelling bees. So you had to be 55 or up for these oh, spelling bees. And these, yeah, and these were not, he had a great prize, by the way. The winners got to go to, um, uh, at that time, the AARP was having these national things in the West, in Wyoming, and, and, and our winners um, went there. So anyway, I did all this stuff, and then I, I developed a thing called the MEMO, M-E-M-O, Memory and Mood Club. And I did that for 10 years in my private practice, 
And I, I led groups twice a month, 10 years. And these were for people in the community who did not need uh, you know, to be in facilities. They did not need uh, assisted living. But what they needed, they, they needed some brightening, um, some brightening of their neurons, let's put it that way. And they, but they were shy or depressive and didn't want to go to free classes at the university. But they, they could tolerate these small groups of about um, eight to 12 people. So it was a really wonderful opportunity and that I do miss. Um, I've edited a couple of books. Um, I, I write, I still write for a, a trade paper called The National Psychologist and my beat is Medicare or aging issues. And um, as I've uh, left, we left Ohio and now we're in beautiful Western North Carolina and um, wrote this book chapter during the pandemic. And um, now I'll be teaching at a small school. So all those things have happened. Mm, yeah. Well, good for you. Gold stars to you. A lot of innovative programs, very progressive ideas as a psychologist, and all the right. while staying connected with the Jaro population, seniors, older adults. That's right. great. That's great. And I was really impressed to see this chapter that you wrote because I know this is a uh, this is a very um, kind of popular topic these days as we look right. at dementia. And we're seeing, we're putting more of a spotlight on some of those dementias that might be reversible dementias. I was working years ago in a geropsychiatric unit, and we would often see admissions who were very confused and disoriented. And everybody thought it was just a dementia, maybe Alzheimer's, but um, we could find after some medical attention, proper nutrition, good medical nursing care, and the person would clear mentally, cognitively. And those were the reversible dementias, what I would call secondary dementias, maybe due to nutrition or stress or depression or trauma. But I, you know, I think this is such an important topic. So I'm thrilled that you wrote this chapter and it opens up an opportunity for us today. Let's start by just talking about dementia in general. You know, we know it's a collection of symptoms, but how do you define dementia? And how does it progress in, um, you know, in a normal course of the illness. Okay. Well, a lot of people are confused about the term dementia. I've, I've heard it misused many times. Um, dementia is really a, an umbrella, a large term that refers to a wide range, you know, of medical conditions caused by brain changes. And the most common uh, of the dementias is Alzheimer's. And we have Sort of two sub, at least two subgroups of Alzheimer's, those who develop symptoms prior to 65 and those who get it in, in um, you know, later than that. I think one of, one of the important messages that I'd like to convey is that it's not a unitary uh, disorder. That is, um, many people who are diagnosed with Alzheimer's dementia also have some vascular or blood vessel changes. Mm -hmm. And, um, also, as you mentioned, some people who have mild cognitive impairment, it doesn't always, quote, convert to dementia. It can be reversible because it, it, it may be uh, just a quick story that you reminded me of. I'll never forget this. There was a gentleman, this is long ago in my, in my practice world, 
he uh, was admitted. Those were the days you could stay in the hospital longer. Anyway, so this gentleman was in the hospital diagnosed with dementia. I was the one to interview him, found out that he lived alone. He was, he was a quirky guy. V8 juice with vodka. Mm. So, so he mm. thought he was getting all his vitamins and nutrition, but he drank a lot of vodka. So, so he was in the hospital for about seven, eight days. They dried him out. I retested him. Lo and behold, his cognition improved tremendously. So mm. yes, what we ingest, what we, what we eat, what we drink certainly doesn't have an effect. Sure. Um, yeah. And there's, you know, a number of other kinds of dementias that uh, besides the vascular, you can have some, something called frontotemporal dementia, which is tough to manage as a caregiver. Wow. Um, because that with those, it changes people's behavior. That's the most uh, dominant symptom more than the memory. Um, and then you can have uh, dementia secondary, you know, Lewy body dementia, L-E-W-Y, named after the man who came up with this Lewy bodies in the brain. And um, a type of Lewy body dementia is uh, secondary to Parkinson's disease. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there, there can be that. So those are, those are the most common ones, but they can be, you can have, especially the vascular and the uh, Alzheimer's together, certainly. Sure. Yeah, they can coexist. Yeah, and I think it's important to emphasize what you said at the outset that there's a collection of symptoms or clinical signs that together right. create this picture of dementia. It's not any singular disease, dementia itself, but there are different variations like Alzheimer's, exactly. fixed disease, and frontotemporal, and so a lot of variations. And these are uh, again, these are the what I call primary degenerative dementias. In other words, these are not reversible. These are not treatable. We can manage a lot of the symptoms, but we cannot cure Alzheimer's, not yet. We cannot cure vascular dementia. No. So these are, these are the primary degenerative conditions. And, and then what we wanna talk about today and explore is this whole notion of the, the reversible uh, dementias or those that are treatable, those that are what I call secondary dementias, just by that very term, that means they are reversible. So you did a lot of research on um, the delay or prevention of dementia yes. when you wrote this chapter. Tell us, tell us what you learned and what you can share with our audience. Okay, I'd love to do that. And um, for those who are listening, I'd like to um, challenge you to listen to what the modifiable risk factors are that are pretty well documented and then pick one or two that you might want to work on for yourself. So this is real practical stuff. Again, you know, this coal miner's daughter never went away. I mean, we're practical people. <laughs> my parents, my family was practical. So, okay. First one is um, of the mod... Well, let me go back to this. Um, there, it's interesting. There were two um, independent research groups in the world, the Lancet Commission out of, out of the UK and Europe and with some Americans. And then there was another group um, in the Eastern side of the world and they published their, their findings all around the same time within the air, right? So, um, so, there's a great overlap. 
but the ones that I'm going to talk about, there's, there's 12. And then just um, a few months ago, the 13th one came out. And so um, let me just launch into that. Well, one is about lifelong learning. And certainly if you're in your 50s, 60s, or 70s beyond, you can't change what you did as a, as a child, but you can change what you're doing now. So you can take some courses and I, I will tell you, Joe, um, my brain has been getting a workout in the past uh, two weeks by taking this position at Brevard College in the I have to learn some new software that is, I'm on a big learning curve. It's not easy, but so that's my new challenge. Ay, ay, ay. It's, hopefully I'll get through this thing. Anyway, um, so keep on learning, never stop learning. We, you know, we used to say, when I was in graduate school, we used to say the three N's, no new neurons. Well, that's considered wrong today, bogus. Throw that idea out. We do have more neuronal growth um, in our as we live. So the second um, modifiable risk factor um, is to hear as well as you can. And um, you know, I tried to understand why would why would that be a factor? Well, it, it does make sense when you think about it, because if you are missing things, if you're not hearing a lot. Um, you don't have as much stimulation in your life. You're just missing out, okay? So it's believed that the reason that hearing is so important is to build up what's called cognitive reserve or extra sort of extra brain cells that we need, um, not just to live, but to help us if we have a brain injury or a right. small stroke or something like that. Right. And then I'm going to add this one. This is um, not in my chapter because this just came out. And um, it does make perfect sense, again, when one thinks about it, and that is um, improving eyesight. Now, I think most people, I think this is an accurate thing to say, most people are not that hesitant to get glasses, right? Or maybe some people are hesitant to get cataracts removed. But if you can sharp, you know, they're considered safe procedures to get, in fact, I had a cataract removed five years ago and, um, you know, it was really amazing. It's, it's something else. So improving one's vision and one's hearing, those all help bring in more information to, mm -hmm. to our brains, right? Right, right. Um, Sensory stimulation, sure. Uh -huh. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So the next one is about weight. And... So this has been an acceptable risk factor with both of these uh, groups of researchers. And they, they, we look at BMI, body mass index. And if, if you don't know how to do that, you can look it up really easy to figure out your own body mass index. Just go on the expert, Mr. Google, and um, put in you know, BMI and how to calculate it. And within um, a couple of minutes, as long as you know your height and weight, you can see what your BMI is. Now, it's not an ideal um, factor because it's considered a surrogate measure of body fat. And there are different um, cultural groups, um, Asians and African-Americans. And also as we age, the BMIs, um, the ideal BMI can change. But in general, 18.5 to 25 is considered the ideal BMI in general. Okay. See, the, the studies with BMI were all done on white males. So that's why... Um, mm -hmm. There's some 
differences depending upon your age and your ethnic group. Okay, so you you want to keep your 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 weight in check as much as possible. That's for overall health, but it's also for well. We used to, not we used to, in my chapter in another book that I edited about 10 years ago, we said, and this is so true, what's good for the heart is good for the brain. So keeping your weight in a reasonable way helps your heart, helps your brain. So the next one, um, <laughs> and I don't like to call it um, exercise, because I think the E word has some, I don't know, it has some negative connotation. So I like to say M&M, move more. Hmm. So you want to move. And without a doubt, um, this helps our, our brain health, our heart health as well. And, um, but the, uh, the researchers who went into all the in depth on these studies found that there is no totally accepted optimal dose or intensity or duration. These were not identified in these um, what are called meta-analytic studies. Um, now, there, there are recommendations, um, but these are not you know, as, as, as hardcore. And that is about 150 minutes a week plus some strength training twice a week. So those are general guidelines for health. but um, you know, you have to start somewhere. So many, many um, people in my age group and older are not that, not that active. Um, and so you have to start slowly, you know, five minutes a day sure. for the first week, and then see if you can reach 30 minutes a day. And also if you can, if you have trouble with your mobility with walking, there are a lot of uh, chair exercises that one can do um, there's a, um, a program you can look it up on again, Mr. Google called sit and be fit and, um, look at the ideas there. Okay. Um, so physical exercise as, as if you watch CNN, you know, the name of Dr. Sanjay Gupta. So Dr. Sanjay Gupta has a, has a popular press book that I like called keep sharp and build a better brain. And I want to quote him. He says, physical exercise may offer the greatest return on investment in yourself. So moving, but, you know, Joe, maybe you've had on your show, um, have you had on your show uh, people from the Blue Zones Project in the United States? Uh, no. Uh, yes, I did. Uh, Nick uh, Butner actually was um, one of my early guests. Yeah. Uh -huh. Right. The, the, mm -hmm. um, yeah, Dan's yeah. brother. Mm -hmm. The brother of Dan, right, right. Mm -hmm. Well, in the blue zones, um, you know, time to go into that, but but those are the areas of the world where people live the longest and the healthiest. Okay. Well, they talk a lot in all of these areas about movement, natural movement. Sure. So not necessarily going to gymnasiums, but taking stairs, parking a little further from this, you know, where you're parking doing uh, hobbies that are active, like gardening, like dancing. My, my, a good friend of mine's mother is in her 90s. And up until she was about 89, she was a square dancer. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of natural movement is very good. Um, my, my parents <laughs> didn't believe in gyms and thought people who did that were, were kind of wimpy because they should be out there, you know, working. And uh, so... Um, my parents both lived um, until 
well into their 80s and never saw a gym in their life. I don't think they knew what it looked like. So, but but they they um, they took walks in their property. They did gardening, that type of thing. So moving naturally is really important. Okay. Um, the next one is about controlling the vascular factors that is our blood vessels. And the, uh, the rule of thumb in both of these big meta-analyses that were done is that if you can, if it's possible through medication, if you need it, um, is to keep the systolic, that's the upper number, it's S over D, systolic over diastolic, keep that systolic of about 130 or less um, from the age of 40. So um, one of the things that uh, I learned uh, in the last few years, I didn't even know they had such things, um, are these portable, really like small things, um, blood pressure cuffs. You can buy them in, you know, on Amazon in the drugstore or whatever, and they're really easy to do. And so um, I'm sure. fortunate not to have hypertension, but my husband does. So he does take his fairly regularly. So mm -hmm. it's, it's an easy thing for a person to really monitor. The next one, which is related, of course, to BMI is improving what you eat, the nutritional part of things. And one thing that I'd like your listeners to know, if they don't already, go on to, it's a simple uh, URL, you know, in the computer, myplate.gov myplate.gov. And, and so our government is part of your tax dollars at work, you know, so take advantage. Um, I did it today just to see what, what I, I could learn because I haven't looked at it for a while. And it, right away, you get this little quiz and it's, it's, um, it's useful information. And then you can get all kinds of information that do sync with, let me use that verb, sync with everything that I uncovered in looking at these huge studies. So those are things, um, ideas, and I know you had a guest on your show last year or so, um, my colleague, Bridget McCaw, uh -huh. yes, a nutritionist, uh -huh. and she and I wrote this, uh, co-authored this chapter. Um, and the idea of eating, eating berries for their anti-inflammatory um, properties, Every, every good diet that, that is, has been studied um, has leafy greens in it, everyone. Um, things like nuts, uh, whole grains, um, and legumes. And I said to Bridget, I, I don't know that, I, I can't define legume, help me with legume. So legumes are things like peanuts and lentils and peas and black beans and soy mm -hmm. and chickpeas. Hummus is made from chickpeas, right? So that's a legume. So um, the other big message that I learned in reading all of this, okay, is to say it's, it's not possible completely, but to try to steer away from ultra processed foods. And again, I said to Bridget, what's an ultra processed food? You know, I, I don't, and she said, well, most foods are processed to some degree except if you're eating a berry, if you're eating a nut, that's, that's in its raw state, right? But when we cook a food, that makes it uh, processed. An example would be, what's that thing called, called fruit leather, you know, things that kids mm, eat. Yeah, the pressed, yeah. Uh, pressed dried fruit. Yeah, well, yeah. Not, just, not like like a plum, but the thing that looks like, um, like, like 
leather. They're used as treats. Kids eat them as treats. Well, it, you don't even know what fruit it was. So it, the further away it is from its raw state, that means it's, it's really processed. So soda pop is another example of, mm -hmm. a, of an ultra processed food. So things that are really don't have any resemblance to the ingredients in their raw form is an ultra processed food. So, you know, again, we can't totally get away from that, but um, you do want to try to limit it. And that's been one of the things that um, after I did this work about a year or so ago, I've been striving for in my family to have less of that. Sure. Okay? Then we get into the other thing that, that we ingest and that would be alcohol. And this is a controversial area, okay? But I found it really interesting in, in um, these, these two big studies. Um, they talk about limiting it, but they're pretty liberal in what their findings were. What they said is keep it, keep it under 21 drinks a week. So that's, that's, that's a lot. So that would be three per day. Now, they did not um, differentiate gender, male, female. So in other studies that, that I've come across, there is a difference um, with the genders. And so women, um, one drink a day is considered, you know, probably all you should do. Um, men too. So, uh, and then, you know, you, you see other studies. I, I saw one just the other day, July 14th, in fact, and it's, and this is entitled moderate drinking linked to brain changes and cognitive decline. Well, mm -hmm. that's one study, but when it's taken overall, um, it may not be um, totally bad. And in fact, in the blue zones, these areas of the world, um, where people live a long time, there is some drinking of wine uh, with of meals. To, to, yes. You know. uh -huh. Yeah. So that's a controversial area. Mm -hmm. I, I will say that. But certainly you want to limit it and you certainly don't want to have 21 drinks in one day or you will probably die. Okay. So, so it needs to be, if you're going to drink it all, it needs to be spread out, et cetera. The next one is avoiding head trauma. So if you are a bicyclist, definitely wear a helmet. And of course, um, our public safety laws have us wearing seatbelts. So you want to avoid head trauma if at all possible. And of course, there's been a lot in the news in the last number of years about football and the CTE, you know, the brain damage yes. that the, mm -hmm. the players get. Um, so that's a, you know, when I was first doing just tell you a little anecdote. My, my son was in high school. He's now 33. So when he was in high school, um, 16, 17 years old, that's when I first learned about brain damage, concussions, that is, concussions as a risk factor for dementia. So I said to him, you know what, Eric, I don't care what you say or what you do, you are not playing football. So <laughs> unfortunately, he has a body type that's much more of a runner type. And so he didn't even gravitate to that. So I was, I was grateful we didn't have to argue yeah, about that. <laughs> soccer is soccer's taken a bad rap for that as well. Yeah. I remember um, when I was learning about dementia, we had this term for our boxers because they had heavy blows mm -hmm. to the head in, in yes. the boxing. And the, the condition was called uh, dementia pugilistica yeah. just from yes. from that yes. constant probably similar to what cte is now chronic traumatic encephalopathy probably very simple that deterioration of the gray matter 
from the repeated mm -hmm. blows. So yeah, good. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a good factor. Sure. Yeah, that, that pugilistica also, they talk about a contra coup injury. So just think about it. If you're, if you're getting slammed in the head, your brain is going to go back to the back part a little bit and then to the front. So it boom, boom. So that's a contra coup injury. Right, coup and contra coup, I remember. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so very bad. So, um, all right, well, what's another one? Well, the next one is also difficult uh, as we age uh, to do this, and that is to get adequate sleep. Okay, but the findings from the two big uh, meta and, I keep saying this, we're wrong, analytic studies give me hope. Um, because general guidelines are um, that seven out, you want to strive for seven hours. Well, um, in these studies, what they, they looked at a longitudinal, that means a, you know, a way over time, a 28-year follow-through study, which as you know, Joe, is very hard to do and expensive. But over in this 28-year longitudinal study, they found that people... Um, did not differ if they averaged five and a half hours, six hours, seven, up to eight hours a night. So my takeaway from reading this and trying to comprehend it is that this is, you know, there's some individual differences here. And you hear about, you know, famous people who said they sleep five hours a night and they did fine. And maybe that is true. Maybe, you know, now, um, Taking naps is not a bad thing. You just don't want to take a really long nap or you'll have difficulty falling asleep at night, of course. So there's a whole lot of things about sleep, what is called sleep hygiene. And, you know, as we get older and I, boy, do I get this now. Um, I used to sleep just solidly for hours and hours. And now that, that doesn't happen. So I have to get up at night and and the getting back to sleep is, is the skill. You have to teach yourself some skills here. Um, sometimes it's easy to get back to sleep, but if you're worried about something, not so easy. So I'm part of sleep hygiene. When I did my memo groups, memory and mood groups, um, I would teach some skills, like some easy to do meditation skills to get people in a zone where they can fall back to sleep. And there's other, you know, strategies like that, but getting at least adequate sleep um, routinely is a good thing for our brain. Now, one of the theories about it, and I would like to mention it before we get off the air today, um, is the controversy about the causes of dementia. But one of the ideas is that when we sleep, there are these cells in our brain called microglia and the microglia the metaphor is that they are um, janitors of the brain and that they, they sweep up or get rid of some of the remnants of cells that, that, that die or, or that have some accumulation of um, a protein called uh, amyloid. Anyway, I don't think it's fully known why sleep is important, but um, we know that it is because people mm, who have sure. horrible sleep have more cognitive problems. Um, Sure. Yeah, yeah. If I could just uh, step in yes. here, um, we know that the different stages of sleep are also, yes. uh, you know, they also impact our, our well-being and deep sleep is shown to be so important because it does offer what you're talking about, that kind of uh, cleaning mechanism where the toxins 
are especially cleaned in the glymphatic system um, in our brain. And if we don't get the deep sleep, those toxins don't get cleared as well as they should. So I think that's also, we're, we're, we're learning more, we're drilling a little bit deeper into the, the different stages and how they contribute to, you know, to our health and well-being. Yes. Well, also, we do know that memory, memories of, of if you're trying to learn something, that sleeping consolidates those memories. So um, I, if, if you're reading something you want to remember and you read it before you go to bed, you'll probably remember it better um, after a good rest. So that's another thing. Um, the, the other areas, and I want to mention medication, and mm -hmm. that is that um, you want to go to your physician and ask about, are there, am I on any medications that are drying me out? Mm -hmm. Anticholinergic side effects, they call that. So, so um, if you have some incontinence of urine, for example, the, the drugs that are often given with that condition have some negative side effects on our brain. Mm -hmm. um, so that's not good. So you have to um, maybe try some other methods um, or you know, live with wearing pads. I mean, I'm just sure. Nice. But um, uh, also, also medications that are, we, we know that sleeping pills are not are not good. They are not positive for our brain health. Um, and also um, anxiolytics, anti-anxiety drugs also are problematic. So which delves right into the next two really important, and we definitely need to mention them, and that is limiting or reducing or coping with our stress and treating depression. That is a well-known, well-established um, risk factor for cognitive decline, okay? And we could have a whole show on that um, for sure. And related to that is the last risk factor, so important, called striving for meaning in your life. So it, the Japanese call it ikigai, and iki is life, gai is, is value to life. So we need meaning. It doesn't have to be, you know, and, and our meaning can be modified over our lifespan. It's not always the same. So when you're in the middle of your career, okay, that's giving you meaning. But if you're beyond that stage, you have to find other things that are giving true meaning and purpose. And the blue zones also talk about um, purpose being critical. So those are, those are the main areas of risk factors. So I ask your audience, think about the areas that you're mostly at risk for. What do you not do that well? And maybe really work on that. Um, I think that's important. Movement you know. is something that I'm trying to do more of. Yeah, yeah, that's such a good list. You know, it occurs to me that we're, we're also talking about those ingredients for living longer and living... Yes healthier and they're at one end of the continuum this successful aging group and at the other end of the continuum are the factors that when they're missing or when they're absent they produce some kind of cognitive loss or cognitive change or can create conditions that may mimic dementia that may be you know looking like it you know it's contributing to confusion or disorientation or memory problem. So it's not only the, the, how the, the plus side is so, so good for us, but it's also 
when it's really missing, it's and not just that it interferes with our longevity, but it actually impairs it. Um, right. So it interferes. So this is an interesting list. It's an interesting conversation that, I mean, as we talk about diet and physical activity, and we know these are essential in blue zones. I always use blue zones as a kind of the roadmap here. And here's what we've learned about the world's oldest old. And these are, these are the ingredients that help us to live longer and the absence of stress and the, the importance of meaning and purpose. So all of these, all of these ingredients in their absence or when they're on the negative side, they're really damaging. They're really damaging. So it, it, it kind of puts another spotlight on this whole collection of um, successful ingredients. Right. And, and part of the, that one ingredient about coping with stress is to also not be isolated. So there's, there are studies suggesting strongly that if you were very isolated, that it's just like smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So if you, if you don't have, uh, you know, and it can be a church group, a synagogue group, uh, a garden club, um, you know, a pickleball group in your community, whatever, but uh, having camaraderie, having connections, if you're lucky enough to have a good family, fantastic um but we can also create our own small quote family units through our friends yeah that's good that's a good point that whole that whole concept of staying socially connected social engagement and the isolation does work against that uh well-being i understand that that's um that's an important addition or kind of qualifier to all of this this is a great list i mean it's so important and like you say if we have a list and in front of us, these are the things that are, you know, we can rank from one to 10. If I'm at 10 on some of these, that's great. But if I'm at two or three, maybe I should put some attention into those areas that are two or three. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. And um, if we have just another two minutes, I'd like to tell you, uh, because this is such cutting edge stuff that came out sure. early um, this week, that um, there it is now out in the public domain that there have been, quote, irregularities in the Alzheimer's research over the past 20 plus years. You know, millions, if not billions of dollars have been put into drug studies to reduce um, protein in the brain, beta amyloid. And a whistleblower reported to, he's a research scientist himself, reported to the National Institutes of Health after studying this in depth that prominent investigators altered images and reused them over the years to support the, the hypothesis or the idea that it was um, amyloid buildup that caused, caused Alzheimer's. Mm. And there, this is showing that they actually engaged in, in um, terribly unethical processes to promote uh, the, the drugs. Well, you're going to hear much more about this, I predict, over the next few months, but it just came out um, this week. Um, yeah. The public. yeah, that's startling. That's startling yeah. to hear that. I'm looking yeah. forward to learning more about it. Yeah, drug studies have not produced that many uh, promising drugs. I mean, we can we certainly can't interfere or delay Alzheimer's. We can manage some of the symptoms, but we certainly can't reverse it. Well, so, we can so. delay it through behavioral changes yeah, that's behavior. that's yeah. it yeah. yeah 
And I predict they'll be more and more interested in this because of what they found with these um, unethical uh, claims. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the Lancet Commission, uh, for my listeners on this program, I have a, an article coming out just today in my July newsletter, and I talk about this very uh, subject of preventable dementias. And I, uh, there's a link to the Lancet Commission in the UK and all of this list and why these, why these different uh, factors made their way onto the list. So, Paula, this is a, this is a great conversation, very thought provoking, I think, very educational for the audience. So, I really want to thank you for sharing this and that you were so close to it. You've written a chapter in a you know a prominent textbook on this very subject. So, uh, good job. Good what job. we've done also, Joe, if I can add this. Yeah. Is, is after I wrote the chapter, then I put together a series of four on-demand webinars on the topic in depth. So those are available through my website. Great. Okay. Well, uh, let's, why don't you share with our audience um, your website? How can people get a hold of you and where okay. can they get more information? Right. Okay. And in fact, on the website, which is... Um, www.altogethercenterforhealthyagingaging.com. So centerforhealthyaging.com. And you can go on there and there is a, if you look at the, um, the programs, there is a, a, a free one and a half hour uh, webinar you can look at that my colleague, uh, my, my nutritionist colleague, Bridget and I put together. And then we go into depth with um, additional webinars, but there's a charge to that. But I also have lots of other articles on, yeah. on the site that might be of interest. Great resource, I'm sure. I'm sure of interest to many of my listeners. So uh, we are out of time for today though, Paul. I, before we wrap up, I just wanna remind our listeners to visit the website, living200.club to sign up for our email list and download a free copy of my nine tips to make living longer enjoyable. While you're there on the website, peruse our library of blogs and podcasts. And again, you'll be able to see the article on preventable dementia that's uh, posted now. And finally, if you're interested, reach out to me to schedule a presentation for your group or community organization or retirement community in person or online. I think there's value in helping older adults feel inspired about their future. Paula, thanks again for being a guest. Hope to get you back sometime in the future. Thank you very much, Joe. Thank you. You're welcome. And thanks to everyone for listening to our program today. Hope to see you next time. Hey everybody, Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.